understanding, making connections. Today, uh, last week um, on Indigo Radio, hosts Becca and Lauren aired the voices of area students that participated and led student walkouts in protest of gun violence, along with the national walkouts of March 14th. Um, Today is part two of that show as we continue the discussion around the connections between gun violence here and the U.S. arms trade and imperialism. Seven out of 10 of the top weapons manufacturers are from the United States and they are making a killing off of killing. And today in the studio, we have two guests with us, um, Tim Kipp, who is a a political activist since the 1960s. Um, He was a draft resistor and he has been a um, teacher for 39 years at both Brattleboro Union High School, Leland and Gray High School, Keene State College, um, and he retired in 2014. We also have Professor Nick Biddle. Um, He is a retired um, history professor um, specializing in Latin America, and he taught one of the um, universities he taught at was Appalachian State University. He is also a political activist and owner of Artrageous, which is a, you should check it out, the local um, sort of art collective in town. And so we're going to kick off the show with um, a song by Midnight Oil. Um, They are from Australia. And the song is aptly named U.S. Forces. Um, So the song we wanted to highlight starts out, U.S. Forces Give the Nod. It's a setback for your country. Bombs and trenches all in a row. Bombs and threats still ask for more. Divided world, the CIA, who controls the issue? U.S. forces give the nod. For your country Bombs and trenches all in rows Bombs and threats still ask for more Welcome back to Indigo Radio. Um, that was Midnight Oil. That's not working. Um, 
And that was Midnight Oil with U.S. Forces. Anna? And we are here with Tim Kipp and Nick Biddle. Um, we're going to introduce them and have them say hello. And uh, first of all, we want to thank you for being in the studio. We also um, know that you are both retired teachers, and Indigo Radio is made up of all teachers in the area. Um, we love when people are in the studio with us, so thank you for being here. I just wanted to make note of yesterday was a uh, March for Our Lives, in which we saw thousands upon thousands of young people out in the streets protesting gun violence. And I saw numbers from 800,000 to a million in DC. And some of the videos were just incredible to see. So what I wanted to ask both of you as former teachers, what is your feeling and reaction to seeing these students out on the streets? Good morning, um, my name's Nick Biddle. Uh, one can only have hope that uh, this is the beginning of a true movement for uh, gun reform in the United States. Um, of course, that remains to be seen. This is Tim Kipp. I, I'm very excited about what's been going on nationwide, locally, and in the national, the national marches. The, um, the student youth movements are nothing new. I, I remember the 1830s. I actually wasn't there, but I, I was pretty close. And uh, how young women from the, the fields and uh, farms of New England would go to, were going to Lowell, Massachusetts, and other textile mills, and they were the ones that led mm. some of the most progressive uh, actions for reform of labor conditions. You know, that's in the 1830s. We can trace that all the way through. We can trace that all the way through to yesterday in many, many capacities. So yes, it is, it is um, a wonderful thing to see. It's nothing new, it just now has to be sustained. Mm -hmm. Great. And so um, a connection that we really wanted to make today um, with what's happening happening domestically is with the uh, global arms trade. And so I'm going to contextualize um, weapons internationally. And so seven out of 10 top arms manufacturers are from the United States. The others um, are from the United Kingdom, Italy, and other smaller companies um, that are conglomerates of the European Union. So the top company, actually, on the very top, meaning they make the most profit, is Lockheed Martin, then comes Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, United Technologies, and L3 Technologies. Um, 60% of global arms, right? So when a bomb goes off in Yemen and a child picks up a gun, it's made in the U.S. And um, the other 10% is made, made, manufactured by the U.K. and others are in Italy, Israel, Japan, and South Korea. So just to give us an idea of how much money Lockheed Martin makes, um, in fiscal year 2017, by the end, they made $51 billion. And their value, their market value, was $91 billion um, on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting when you go onto their website, the kind of language that they use in order to sell their products. They, they say, quote, Lockheed Martin has a long history of successfully providing its customers with missile and missile systems that are affordable, proven, and in production. Um, our reputation is backed by a record of exceptional contractual performance and successful partnerships. Lockheed Martin is supporting the warfighter by providing a wide variety of highly effective and reliable weapon systems to ensure that the right weapon is available for each situation that they may face. Anna? So uh, we want to start with Tim here. Tim, you recently wrote a piece in the Brattleboro Reformer called Guns, History, and Democracy, and you talked about the political economy of the slave plantation. I'm going to read a quote from your piece. Uh, you said, the gun was the instrument of that property preservation and racist control. A society attempting to cage and exploit the labor of millions must rely on more than law and acquiescence to achieve mastery over its citizens. 
I was wondering if you could talk about what you mean by this and some of the history you lay out and how the gun is used to control and exploit. The, um, what, I was, what I was attempting to do in that piece was to demonstrate that, uh, well, the, the question arises, well, why do, why, do we have, why do we have such a gun problem in the United States? And then people blame it, sim I think, in a very simplistic way on the NRA. I think they are complicit, but they, they certainly are not the genesis of the problem. The, uh, you have to look, I, in my view, you have to look deeper, and I look deeper in terms of our relationships in our colonization process, starting certainly with Native Americans and then the colonization of, of Africans. Um, and as a result of that kind of mindset and that kind of both, both ideological mindset and also an economic mindset that there's, there are needs that, that are uh, required in order to control and there's, uh, there's some uh, absolute necessity for uh, a capital control um, to use force and violence. And we know that the, the Second Amendment is, was the only, the only Second Amendment, if you will, ever codified into a, a state's or a country's constitution. The, the reality is that was almost an afterthought. It was, it, was, it, was all, it was a given even prior to 1791 that the use of guns by locals, not only just militia, not just by a continental army, but by local individuals was, uh, rose to the, almost to a sacred right. And that it was absolutely necessary in order to control their investments uh, and control their land. And um, I think about this as I'm a, a teacher. I'm a teacher at uh, UMass Amherst. And I, one of the, I'm in public health. And one of the te uh, classes I'm teaching is to juniors. It's called health communication. It's a writing class. Um, and I also need them to try and think about global issues around public health and how to understand the information that they're reading. And so one of the recent things I have brought in, actually we're going to be doing it on Monday, is around cholera and Yemen. And so I'm thinking about that as a current situation and thinking you're giving this history around the slave plantation and Nina talking about the um, arms trade is how all of this is linked. And just this past week, uh, the Saudi prince uh, Crown Prince was here meeting with President Trump, and they signed a 670 million arms um, sale to Saudi Arabia, and that's part of this larger 12.5 billion arms deal. And I find uh, that Yemen is not talked about that much, um, and it has actually been called one of the worst humanitarian disasters. And so we talk about collateral d damage. But what that means is uh, 22 million people in need of assistance in Yemen, uh, one of the worst cholera outbreaks in history. Um, the aerial bombardments from Sa the Saudi-led coalition has destroyed the infrastructure. It's destroyed water systems and the healthcare system. And so thinking about that, and are we at war with Yemen? Because we are supplying arms, we're refueling these planes. Uh, and I know Bernie Sanders just recently um, was on the floor talking about this. And so I would love to, we'll go to Nick right now, is, is thinking about that current situation in Yemen. What do we mean when we talk about imperialism? Uh, and how would you, for our listeners out there, put into terms that we can all understand what imperialism is? Imperialism basically involves acquisition and control of territory, resources, and labor of places and people outside one's own nation for the single purpose of creating profitable commerce that will benefit the citizens of one's own nation to the, uh, uh, <laughs> to the extraction and exploitation of the foreign territories which you control. 
imperialism is meant and designed to improve the lives of one's home citizens at the expense of other people. Now, Yemen is a war that's being fought by drones in terms of the United States' participation. Drones are constructed by Boeing, by Lockheed Martin, and Raytheon. So our war in Yemen raises the stock value of those three corporations. Raising the stock value of those three corporations improves the livelihood of those of us who, those few of us, those very few of us, those 1% of us who own stock in these corporations. This is, the, at this moment in time, one of the larger components of how U.S. imperialism functions. Uh, yes, for sure. If you look at um, the, the patterns of U.S. arms trading, uh, for example, it fits perfectly into what, um, what uh, Eisenhower warned us about in his prophetic statements in 1961, the military-industrial complex. So we must be uh, leery, wary, and fearful of in which the combination of the, the, the corporate state and the military state and, and the political state um, combine for their own self-interests and not and and everything becomes defined certainly in the mainstream mass media and in the mainstream conventional and anal political analysis that well that's what we do when we go to these wars when we have these preemptive wars so forth it's for national security the national security of whom I would ask the national security of the bottom line of those that are creating the policy and then in the long term will benefit from the policy. Um, overseas bases, we have, it's very difficult to find out. Uh, the best sources I have is from uh, Chalmers Johnson, who he's now dead, but he has he studied, that was one of his, one of his long-term interests was, was the projection of military force around the world. His estimate is 800 bases around the world. In, and, and I've read anywhere from 31 countries to 80 countries. And part of the problem is how do you define a military base? Some of ours are satellite bases that we may not have buildings, but we are housed in other in a, a host countries' buildings. So the government doesn't want to call that one of our bases. Um, to give you an example of that, Russia has bases in nine countries, France, nine countries, Japan, 12, China, one. So we have them either in 31 to 80 different countries, to give you an idea of the projection. Now that's not, that's not uh, inconsequential by any means. The, uh, the idea here is to project, project a dominant military power. And, uh, and, and it's, a, it's not only symbolic, beyond sim symbolism, it is the practical projection of power in, in, uh, on a global scale. Great. So um, we're going to talk a little bit more um, in after our music break about um, U.S. military power abroad and, and connecting that to um, weapons production here in the U.S. So we're going to take a little break and we're going to um, listen to a song by Bob Connolly. Uh, he is a f American folk singer. Um, and his song is called Yankee Go Home, and it was recorded in 1975. Um, and this record that he created, all his songs are um, anti-imperialist, and it, it is a, um, quote, riveting musical journey through the early years of American imperialism. Irony, frustration, and condemnation spew forth from Connell Connolly, who paints a harrowing view of the birth of U.S. imperialism and the subsequent conquests of Hawaii, the Philippines, and Panama. And this is Yankee Go Home by Bob Connolly. Yankee go home, oh Yankee go home. Yankee go home and leave us alone. Yankee go home, oh Yankee go home. Yankee go home and leave us alone from south america you can hear the bitter cry you can hear it you can fear it and ask the question why yankee go home oh yankee go home yankee go home and leave 
was alone. Yankee go home, oh Yankee go home, Yankee go home and leave us alone. We exploited South America through many hungry years. They look at us with hostile fears, and that's the reason why. Yankee go home, oh Yankee go home, Yankee go home and leave us alone. Yankee go home, oh Yankee go home, Yankee go home and leave us alone. Through the trumble Congo, you can hear the bitter cry. You can hear it, you can fear it, and ask the question why. Yankee go home, oh Yankee go home, Yankee go home and leave us alone. Yankee go home, oh Yankee go home, Yankee go home and leave. Us alone. The problem we have got to face in dealing with the Negro race. Our own South ones with Negro blood, and that's the reason why. Yankee go home, oh Yankee go home. And you're back with Indigo Radio. We're here every Sunday at noon on WBEW. Uh, we feel so lucky to have two retired history professors we're having some mic issues yeah you're good you're good (laughs) this is community radio everyone (laughs) okay so tim and nick we're so happy you're here um and to share your experience and knowledge with us um one of the things that struck me that i would love either of you to talk about is this thing about how do we make these links of the way that we live in this country is linked to the way that other peoples live in other countries, meaning that even if we talk about our own community in Brattleboro, there are people struggling. Uh, there are people that can't afford housing. There are people that are living on the streets um, that don't have enough food. Um, and so who? So we, we talk about oh, this is a national security, or even Trump with Yemen and this arms deal talked about, this is going to create jobs for people. But who is benefiting from uh, these wars and linking that to imperialism? I think it's important to uh, look at the carbon or oil economy when we start to think about Yemen and who's benefiting and what, how this correlates to the United States' current conditions in society. It's clear that most people in these United States understand that the carbon economy is creating destruction across the environmental spectrum and that somehow, at some time, we're going to have to change the carbon economy. And yet the person who's currently occupying the White House and his minions are in great uh, enthusiasm for expanding the carbon economy. And Saudi Arabia is the center of the carbon economy. And so what we have is a population domestically that does not agree with the general policy of the US government, which does support a war in Yemen to to, to, to reinforce the power of Saudi Arabia, the closest carbon economy ally, And by doing that, we have to persuade ourselves somehow or other that there's something positive in this. But it it is not positive because what it is doing is maintaining a status quo. And this is what we're really witnessing, maintenance of a status quo of homelessness, of education funding being cut, of health care costs being increased or taken away from us. This is a status quo that that does not bring jobs, and yet we tell ourselves, or we are told that it does, through this carbon economy expansion that uh, the Trump campaign has always promoted. It's it's deception, and it's unfortunate. Sorry, Nick, can I ask just one quick clarification, because I'm not sure of this. What is, I just don't hear that much, carbon economy? What does that mean, just also for our Uh, listeners? Carbon economy is the economy based upon oil, coal, and other carbon products which feed our whole economic transportation, et cetera. Um, A a few uh, thoughts. One, the 
the most recent budget, which is no, really no different than a military budget and national budget, and the military budget is no different than it's been since 1950, really, when we decided that the United States decided that we're going we're gonna to have what is uh, going to be called a permanent war economy. Now, this wasn't uh, out in the public, but what we learned out of World War II is that high military spending boosts certain segments of the economy. It doesn't help poor people. It didn't help, it didn't help uh, lower middle class. It didn't help uh, a lot, lot of segments of the society, but we know who it did benefit. It benefited those uh, the one percenters or the five percenters or wherever, however you want to characterize it. Fifty percent of today's budget, the money that's allocated, and the best figure I've gotten so far is $639 billion for the military, which is a 10 percent increase over last year. It's the biggest, one of the biggest increases we've seen outside of wartime. Fifty percent of that money is going to go to private corporate contractors. It's not going to go not going to go to uh, securing the lives of the people that are risking their lives. It's not going to go to homeless vets. It's not going to go to benefits for, for those who fight. It's going to go to benefit those who are uh, the, the corporate bene benefactors of that. So I think that's, that's something that we have to keep in mind in terms of, you know, who, who benefits from this. Uh, in 2000, there was a, a, a document came out in, from the uh, presidency of Cheney and Rumsfeld, and I can't remember the other guy's name. Oh, oh Bush, <laughs> that's right. Uh, but the Cheney-Rumsfeld presidency, and Bolton was in part of that too, as a matter of fact. Um, they they uh, authored a 20-year uh, a projection for 20 years and uh, for what, what the United States' role should be in the world. And they... Uh, in, in the wonderful world of, of Pentagon euphemisms, called it full-spectrum dominance. Now, what the heck is that? Quote, I'm reading, I'm quoting directly from their document. The ability of the, of the U.S. operating alone or with allies to defeat any adversary and control any situation across the range of military operations, and that's around the world. Okay, so, and then they went on, said, for land, sea, air, underground, outer space, psychological, biological, and cyberspace. The, we know that uh, at that time, 2000, the goal was that we should have the capacity, the United States should have the capacity to fight two and a half wars simultaneously, wars the size of, of, the, of the second um, Iraq war, simultaneously, two and a half wars. All right. Are we keeping up with that? Are we, uh, we, well, I think we may have be exceeding that. I'm not sure. That. Yes. So, and, and, and that just doesn't come about because uh, we are, we're, we're so insecure. Oh, my goodness, we're going to be taken over when we have, when, we, when our military budget is bigger than, well, depending upon what you read, our, our annual military budget is larger than the, t the top seven or eight countries uh, in the world today. All right, combined. All right, these things just don't come about from insecurity. They come about because in an oligarchy, and that's really what we have. It's not a democracy. The rule makers are benefiting. The we know who the rule makers are. Now, I don't want to sound, you know, sound like a uh, conspiracy theorist. It's all out there. It's, there's nothing hidden in all this. All you have to do is listen to the debates in Congress. All you have to do is listen to. Uh, what Congress does in terms of uh, interest groups such as the NRA and so forth. So, yeah. yeah, and Tim, I'm glad you brought up uh, veterans because I'm thinking also about how we define imperialism and I was thinking it's not only the extraction and the use of cheap labor, it's also, I think in my definition, it's the effects of imperialism mm -hmm. on people and mm -hmm. that veterans um, are not given adequate health care. Mm -hmm. There's I know there's a site called 22 a day in which 22 veterans mm -hmm. committing suicide. Um, I think it's just outrageous the way that veterans are treated. And I think oftentimes the conversation in these kind of conversations, oh, you're, you don't care about um, veterans or the yeah. military members. Actually, like I care about them so much that I wouldn't be sending them there in the yes. first place. Yes. Right, right. Yep. Yeah, and that was um, that was always uh, kind of a mantra for us in the peace movement in the '60s and '70s. Is mm -hmm. you, you want to support the troops, bring them home. Yeah. Right. Bring them home, and uh, we truly, we truly uh, were. You know, 
we had that in the forefront of our minds and not not the conventional kind of historiography that says that oh the troops were spit on when they came home and there weren't parade and so forth no we were working to make their lives better by trying to end the imperial wars that we always engage in right and earlier um tim you mentioned um the government contracts. And I'm just going to uh, read this a little bit and get, get your take on it. So I calculated um, the uh, uh, jobs, right? So I the Business Insider um, had listed the top 25 um, American companies that are, that are manufacturing um, arms for the world, including domestically. And so, of course, number one is Lockheed Martin and then Boeing, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, these profits that these companies make come from government contracts, which means government money and our tax money. Um, and also just connecting it to domestic um, gun manufacturing. In January 2016, Josh Harkinson published this article called How America's Gun Manufacturers Are Quietly Getting Richer off taxpayers and in regards to like um job creation so i calculated i brought the calculator out so calculating all the people who are employed by the top 25 25 arms manufacturers right there are about approximately um two million right rounding it up and then looking at pew research um how many approximately americans are employed it's 150 million which puts it at 1.3 percent of all americans are um employed by these manufacturers and so this argument about oh they're creating jobs um what do you think about that um first of all the uh, pentagon strategy early on in the 50s was to make sure that they have production they have some some component of the pentagon would be in every state in the nation so they could use that argument during the during the time when, uh, when I mentioned the permanent war economy, that if we spend as though we are in a war, then we can, we can use that, that, that canard of national security when in fact it is, it is a, a, a very weak smokescreen for who's gonna benefit from that. Um, I, I, I can't, I, I can't uh, give you a citation on this, but I know that uh, from what I've read, there is, the military budget and the military component of our of our uh, political economy is so integrated, highly integrated, into our society, but it is not necessarily benefiting everyone in that in our society. In order to uh, so they're doing that in order to preserve their their budgets, get natural constituencies such as uh, natural constituencies of Congress to make sure that they keep supporting supporting uh, the, that infrastructure. I think it's important also to um, make a connection between the, the larger global gun industry and the, our, you know, our sociological love of guns individually here in the United States and how they reinforce each other. So that uh, to the degree that uh, the NRA promotes uh, the wonderfully, uh, in, you know, the, the libertarian uh, individualism that a gun provides to every individual, that essentially is a smokescreen and a cover for the United States writ large to be the biggest gun holder and propagator on earth at, because we are the great. We are coming back. We are going to be so great at all of this. And, and that's, a, that's a bad joke. So following up on, on what Nick would just said, uh, the United States experiences shootings uh, at, a, at a rate 11 times more than any other developed nation. 11 times our, our citizens are victimized by guns. A small arms survey done in 2007 said that, of course, we're, we're less than 5% of the world's population but we have anywhere from 35 to 50% of the world's civilian-owned guns. So as high as 50% of the civilian-owned guns. Right. There has been a 71% increase in handgun ownership since 1994 in this country, to give you an idea. The CDC just recently came out, the Center for Disease Control just recently came out with a study that said 
according to the CDC, the leading cause of death for, for people 15 to 24 years old are guns. The leading cause. Yeah, and, and to think that around the world with our arms, mm -hmm. that this is the reality for people around the world every day, yes. almost every minute, yes. like Yemen. There was an interesting article in this morning's Times, uh, Nick Kristoff, who does a lot of work on working with uh, uh, poverty around the world. And, and what, what the piece that he presented uh, this morning was that we have to look at, at conflict as the cause of violence, excuse me, conflict as a cause of poverty is that if we, look, if we look at conflict as the source of, po of poverty and we treat conflict like we would uh, malnutrition or disease or poor water or bad infrastructure, that we may get closer to uh, a reality of improving the world if, if we see that and if, if, if we continue to perpetuate the arms trading and the arms racing, and that's, that's, it's still going on. Um, we are not, we're going to get farther and farther away from it, that civilized world we're looking for. And I would also add to that, thinking about you know, the, the cause of poverty or looking at violence, is that we are within an economic system that is based off of maximizing profit, and that capitalism actually necessitates that violence. Mm -hmm. it, and that uh, when we think about military and arms, it is a tool mm -hmm. in order to extract that profit. Yes. Because I feel like that ties to what we were first talking around, the slave economy, mm -hmm. and that yeah. violence was used in order for profit. Um, I think that we, I know we want to talk more, a little bit about Latin America with yep. Nick. Yep. Um, well, we should take a song Take break. a break first yep. and come back, and we're going to um, ask a few questions to Nick around his, his uh, work and teaching around imperialism within Latin America. Okay, yeah, um, so the song is The Offspring. It, it's by Offspring called Baghdad. Radio, you're listening to WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, and it is also streaming live at www.wvew.org. Um, that was Baghdad by The Offspring, and we chose that song because it has been uh, 15 years since the United States invaded um, Iraq. And in the studio today, we have two amazing guests, um, Tim Kipp. A political activist since the 1960s and continuing on today. He was a draft 
resistor, um, taught for 39 years in the area, Leland and Gray, Brattleboro Union High School, and Keene State College. Um, and also Professor Nick Biddle, who is um, a retired professor of Latin American history from Appalachian State University and the owner of um, Artrageous. Um, and our topic today is, um, is a continuation from last week's um, show about gun violence. Um, and this week we're, we're broadening the conversation to talk more about um, the global arms trade. And so um, I'm going to... Uh, Nick, I'm directing this this uh, question at you and, and what you think about uh, this quote. This is a, a quote uh, from an article called U.S. Imperialism, Europe in the Middle East, um, written by Samir Amin. And he says that um, in the system of collective imperialism, the United States does not have decisive economic advantages. Um, the U.S. production system is far from being the most efficient in the world. In fact, the United States only benefits from comparative advantages in the armament sector precisely because this sector largely operates outside the rules of the market and benefits from state support. And North American economy lives parasitically to the detriment of its partners in the world system. Um, what are your thoughts around that? There are many. Um, it, you know, the, it begins with the, uh, at what Tim referred to as the military-industrial complex, the Cold War, and this decision to create a permanent war economy. Once that was made in the late 40s and early 1950s, then, as Tim also pointed out, 50% of our tax, federal tax dollars have been going into the Pentagon, whatever that really means. And that means, among other things, that Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon, Northrop, Rockwell, da 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 da, right down to Smith and Wesson um, in Springfield, get tax dollars to create the best, newest, and most advanced weaponry. Which, because the United States has been so focused on that, has been successful in the sense that the United States makes the best weapons. That's great. We kill better than anybody else. Um, with that comparative advantage, needless to say, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, what's the song say? Uh, if you can't build bombs, you're going to use them. Um, and it, 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 so it's a self-fulfilling pro prophecy. The, uh, we know that um, the, the the economic studies done over oh, 20, 30 years have always compared what kind of uh, uh, positive benefit results from civilian spending and production versus military spending. And I don't have the data in my head anymore, but clearly if you're, if you're putting your uh, investments into the community, into in infrastructure, into housing, into health and education so forth you are going to employ a lot more people a hell of a lot more people and you are going to have actually have something to do with that when a, a simple analogy would be well do you want to you want to build a school or do you want to build a whole fleet of tanks mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. how often will you use that school and how often will you use those tanks and what are they for yes. <laughs> too yeah and and that gets back to uh really where does the advantage come down and so I've been phenomenally amazed since 2009 anyway, how the stock market has been on a 10-year rise while homelessness has been too. While I don't see the stores along the Main Street doing so well, and I'm one of them, and how do I explain that to myself? Well, the benefits of this arms production and this military-industrial complex are the benefits to go to these major, major corporations whose stock on Wall Street keeps being good and better, good and better. So again, who benefits? Mm -hmm. Well, it's the stockholders. And I think, I, I don't know the statistic, but as I understand it, 85% of all stocks are owned by the top 1%. If you look at it uh, in terms of our tax structure in the 1950s, um, corporations were taxed at about, I believe, a 30% rate. The, t the tax rate now is, you ready for it, 11%. Mm -hmm. 
and and of course then the bulk of that comes falls then for revenues for the operation of our system falls on the individual mm -hmm. right so you and, and and there's an interesting corollary there too uh that during the 50s, you had you had the highest rate of unionization. Mm -hmm. It's about 30, maybe 38 percent. Now it's down to unionize of shops, you know, for production, um, down to about nine or seven or nine percent. Right. So. And earlier, I mentioned that article about. Um, so how America's gun manufacturers are quietly getting richer off taxpayers. So even down in Connecticut, after the Sandy Hook shooting. Um, I forgot what company it was that, that produces uh, guns or bullets. They moved, right, to get a tax break. Uh, they, they said, oh, I'm sorry, but, you know, the laws are against, you know, our production or whatever, like, our, doesn't benefit us, so we're going to move and move the jobs away as well. Like, yeah, so... Um, Anna, do you want to bring I us in? I want to ask, um, real quick, Tim, you had mentioned before when we were talking... Um, about the suppression of information around guns, guns right? Yes. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about sure. that? Yeah. Yes. Um, I, it's not very well known, so um, I'd be happy to talk about it. The, um, the United States government has actively suppressed the research on guns in the United States since 1996. There's something called the Dickey Amendment. James Dickey of Arkansas um, uh, sponsored this legislation. It was passed, effectively ending the CDC's research on any any gun research that would lead one to conclude that we should control arms, that we should have um, more increased. I'm not talking about nuclear weapons. I'm talking about domestic, you know, guns. Um, and and since that study was done, there have been what 600,000 people um, shot by guns and their victims. The government has largely abandoned efforts to learn why people shoot one another. The government is not interested in learning for themselves or what can be done to prevent violence. Now, we do know that the, uh, the NRA and others uh, were instrumental in making sure that that got before the members of Congress. Um, there, is some, there is some research being done, but it's, it's uh, minuscule compared to what, what it was and what it could be. And then they reinforced, the Congress reinforced that in 2003 with the Tehart Amendment, a guy named Todd Tehart, a Republican of Kansas. And what he did is he went after the data that was, is collected by, by government and local and state police forces on tracing where, where guns go, where they travel to, how do, they, how do guns move. And he literally, this legislation says, we cannot, you cannot allow that information to be in, go into the hands of private uh, researchers. And as the, as the uh, some gun organizations, or excuse me, some, um, some of the uh, uh, law enforcement agencies have said that it is absolutely crucial that we need that kind of data, and it's also cru crucial that we have we have academics doing the research on the flow of where guns go, how are they processed through our society, either in the black market or in the commercial uh, market. Uh, but now, with two very powerful, still in operation um, amendments, uh, the federal government is actively suppressing the, the search for knowledge on, mm -hmm. in, this, in this public health issue of gun violence. Mm -hmm. Which reminds me of uh, my favorite uh, poster from yesterday that I've seen so far, and it's a it's a, a young black male holding a sign that says, "I'm a black boy, and I hope someday I have as many rights as guns mm -hmm. do." Wow. Yeah, yeah. Actually, in in talking about that, one of my favorite signs uh, from yesterday was from a teacher uh, that said, "I only pack a lunch." <laughs> so, uh, on that note, actually, um, and we're nearing the end of our show, right. I w we want to talk a little bit about teaching because all of us here are teachers, and you know what, uh, Tim and Nick, I'm going to say you're actually not retired because you're, you're still uh, teaching out there in the world. Yeah, and I'm making about as much as I was when I was teaching. <laughs> exactly. So, I would love to hear um, from both of you about 
how do we make uh, these connections in the classrooms around imperialism and gun violence? I also want to say there were young people out there making these connections yesterday that were amazing. Um, but how do we as teachers continue to teach about imperialism and linking what's happening here to violence abroad too? Do you have any thoughts on that? I always go back to uh, a letter that uh, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, uh, penned to James Madison, who wrote the Constitution in 1809. This letter uh, was written in 1809. And in it, uh, Tom Jefferson says, I am persuaded no Constitution was ever before so well calculated as ours for extensive empire and self-government. And by self-government, he means what I think today we mean by democracy. And the problem is that those are mutually exclusive. You cannot have extensive empire and self-government because the people who are getting governed by an empire are, by definition, not self-governed. We confront, as citizens of the United States, this unending contradiction that we consider ourselves democratic, that we value more than anything else those immortal words of Thomas Jefferson that every human being has inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We believe that's true, and yet our history is one of empire, extensive empire, which does not give those rights to anybody in the wake of our imperial activities. This fact is the lever by which I always talk to students. You believe in democracy. You believe you are from a democratic state. You believe in human rights, civil rights, and yet all the history contradicts that. Mm -hmm. So let's look at this history so that we can get back our rights. Mm -hmm. the, um, it was Howard Zinn that said, I, um, I'm interested only in teaching a usable past, hmm. a usable past, and that has always influenced me uh, for years. And, that, and th what he meant by that and what I mean by that is that what is it in our history that informs us and motivates us to, to reach that better society? Uh, we, can t we can study antique history. Uh, if we want, good, and that's all well and good, and that's kind of what he called it. But what are those, what are those events, what are those uh, stirring human uh, gatherings of the, those acts of millions of individual acts that collect us into real action? Look at the million kids down in Washington yesterday. Those are the kinds of histories that we very seldom get, even to this day, if you read and read any conventional, any conventional textbooks, is, has very little to do with citizen participation. Democracy is not about voting. It's about voting with, it's about voting with your feet. It is, about, it is about action. It is about collection and collective action. It is not, oh, every two years we're going to vote and therefore we'll do that and maybe pay attention for a little bit and then we'll go home again and go sit and watch the baseball game. All right? um, but what if we can convey to our students, and that's what I've attempted to do, not only through the intellectual process but also through what John Dewey uh, taught me, and that was you have to do it, you have to learn by doing it. And then after you've done it, you start thinking about it, and you process it, and then you do it again. And so to sort of wrap it back to the beginning, what happened yesterday is a wonderful example of democracy in action, but it is really one step in a long journey to the other end of gun reform. And it's not like the students don't know that, but as, um, as people are witnessing it, we're going to see how well they can develop that and right. we are here to help them. Right, yeah. to sustain that resistance, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for yes. those thoughts. That Those were really yeah. great and I love the, um, the thought of you get out there, you do it and you do it again because we yeah. don't have a clear roadmap and we need to all figure it out. And if, if, we, uh, if we don't remain optimistic and energized, then mm -hmm. they, whoever they are, and we can decide for ourselves, will win. Mm. Yeah. And uh, we, we want to win, yes. we the people. Yeah.
Beautiful. Okay, well, well um, so before we wrap up, I'd like to thank our guests, um, uh, Tim Kipp and Nicholas Biddle. And I just want to uh, promote some um, events that are coming up this week. Uh, we have um, Ziad Abbas uh, and Jody um, coming in from uh, San Francisco, and they're, they're kind of doing a, a tour, um, a speaking tour starting Tuesday, March 27th, is coming Tuesday. Um, they'll be in uh, at UMass Amherst, um, and they'll be talking about resistance in Palestine as well as Honduras and in Springfield, Mass. Um, do you want to talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, so that's going to be at UMass Amherst at 7 p.m. on campus. Uh, it's it's called Resisting Occupation. There's two Black Lives Matters activists from Springfield, Massachusetts, a uh, Honduran activist and educator, and then Ziad from Palestine. And the, um, you know, ties into what we're talking about today is linking these struggles um, and that the specifics might be different, but what is the common link between them? And then they continue on uh, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, they will be in Boston at Harvard University and UMass Boston and Boston University. And then Friday, they'll be back in the area. If you uh, miss them at UMass Amherst, you can find them at um, Keene State College from 6 to 8 p.m., Friday the 30th. Um, and then Monday, April 2nd, they'll be down in Northampton at the First Church of Northampton. Um, you can find more information on our Facebook page. Um, just find us on Brattleboro Solidarity. Um, and also on Indigo Radio. Um, and next week, uh, Ziad will be on the show, and he will be talking about Palestine um, and the struggles in Palestine and the resistance happening there. So stay tuned for that. And um, thank you again to the guests. Thank and you so much. Yeah. And Great to be here. Our <laughs> pleasure. And um, so we're going to go out with a song by uh, Jefferson Airplane called Volunteer. That's, that's for you two. Yes. <laughs> 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 I recognize that name. <laughs>